from the book of John, chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Hope you guys are doing well. Good to have you with us. We also want to welcome those of you that are on YouTube Live right now. Thank you for joining us. The title of this series we kicked off a couple weeks ago is Believe, and we're working our way through the Gospel of John, and we're going to talk about this weekend living a great life based on John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And as you're turning there, turn to the person next to you and ask them, what's the big idea of the Gospel of John? What is John trying to accomplish by writing this? Turn to them real quick and ask them that question. Hint, hint, the answer is at the top of your bulletin there, your, uh, your sermon notes. If you remember, John... 2031, John says, this is why he wrote this book. These things were written so that you might, what? Believe. That's why we titled the whole series, Believe. That's, that's his point. These things have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. And so that's the whole purpose of the book, and so we want to certainly know what it means to believe and have our faith begin to soar in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grab your sermon notes there, part of the intro. Since we're talking about living a great life, let me ask you some questions here. What is greatness? What does it mean to live a great life? 
Besides Jesus, who has been the greatest and most influential person in your life? When you die, will people say at your funeral that you were a great person? In the early days of Desert Breeze, as a young pastor, I was still working for Phoenix Fire doing the kind of bivocational thing for the first five years. And uh, I had one of my very first funerals, and it was at a home. It was packed full of family and friends, and this guy had passed away. He was probably around 80 or so. And when I walked into the room, I, I began to eulogize him and begin to give them the gospel. And then at the, kind of towards the end of it, I opened up for anyone to share with the rest the impact or the legacy this person had passed onto them. And it was uncomfortably quiet. You could hear a pin drop. No one offered to say a thing. And I waited just a little bit longer until it was really, really uncomfortable. And then I just finished up the, uh, the funeral, prayed, and then one of the family members was walking me out of the house. As they were walking me out of the house, I, uh, I, I continued to console him and say, I know this is hard. This is really difficult. There is a kind of a grieving process. And just so hang in there. If you need help, just give me a call. And he said, are you kidding me? We're glad the old expletive is gone. And um, I was kind of shocked. And as I was walking out the door, they were popping their beer cans and getting ready to celebrate. And uh, evidently, he didn't live a great life, to say the least. Luke chapter 7, verse 28, Jesus said, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. He's just saying, John is a great man. And then he goes on in that same verse and says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. He's talking about us. So here's the question I want you to think about as we work through this study about really the life of John the Baptist. If this is what the person John the Baptist looked like who preached, who, who prepared, who prepared the way for Jesus, then what should a disciple of Jesus Christ look like who comes after Jesus? Now, how many of you would actually expect the person who came to prepare the way for Christ to be wearing animal skins, camel hair, eating locust and wild honey, I think he needed the wild honey to get down the locust <laughs> and wandering around in the desert, as it says in Matthew chapter 3. You see, if John the Baptist lived today, he would be medicated, diagnosed bipolar, and known as a certified lunatic. And uh, he was Jesus' crazy cousin who had no formal education and no degrees. He would be like an Arizona cowboy survivalist living off the grid as large crowds are coming to him to hear what he has to say. And yet John, John is showing us how to live a great life. So you can see on your notes, so if you want to live a great life, you must, there's three things. You must know who you aren't. Know who you are and know who Jesus is. That's where we're headed with the study. 
So if you want to live a great life, know who you aren't, know who you are, and know who Jesus is. Let's take that first one. So if you want to live a great life, you must know who you aren't. Look at verses 18 through 21. Keep your Bibles open. You can follow along. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? That's a really important question. That would be a good question for you to answer. Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. Kind of another emphasis on that. He confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Now, let's talk about the Pharisees because the Pharisees are the ones that sent this little committee to go and ask uh, John the Baptist these questions. We need to know a little bit about the Pharisees. The Pharisees had far more knowledge than they had love. Their knowledge had outrun their love. You know what I'm talking about? And in fact, uh, 1 Corinthians 8.1 says, knowledge puffs up, but love does what? It builds up. And it, it's, not, it's not knowledge or love. It's knowledge and love. You see, the more you grow in your knowledge of God, the more you should increase in your capacity of love for God and others. The more truly biblical you are, the more lovingly relational you will be. Otherwise, you're just cramming your cranium full of information. When the Bible talks about knowing God, it's not just information, it's about intimacy. It's about intimacy with him. And believe me, if you are intimate with him, it will transform your heart. And it was evident that their knowledge had outrun their love. And the Pharisees' problem was that they thought they were always right and therefore the self-appointed critics and judges of everyone They didn't come to John to build him up, but to beat him down as they they did to Jesus. You can always tell when you're around religious people, they're not there to build you up. They're going to hammer you. They're going to beat you up. And that's the Pharisees. It's because of their pride, because of their superiority complex. They came to interrogate him because they were jealous that his popularity was trending and going viral. People were flocking to John the Baptist to hear what he had to say. Now, verses 20 through 23, he said very clearly, I am not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet. Now, it's interesting because where did they get these ideas? Well, Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 and 4, 5, this is the Old Testament. It prophesies about the forerunner, of the Messiah who will be like Elijah. So that's what they're referencing to. And then in Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses talks about a prophet that will come and lead God's people. So that's what they were referencing to there also. And they also knew that, knew that the Messiah was coming. Now, in Matthew 17.12-13, through 13, Jesus said that John was the Elijah, was the Elijah. But, but because of John's humility, he had no idea of his own greatness. And I think that's why he's denying this here. He's just saying, no, I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. And in fact, he is. 
But I think it was because of his humility. It tells us in Proverbs 27 too, let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Now, John certainly didn't have a superiority complex. That's the next point on your notes, as the Pharisees did. It's obvious that the Pharisees had a superiority complex. But John didn't, and let's, let's define what a superiority complex is. It is thinking too highly of yourself. It's based on pride, conceit. <clears throat> now, Romans 12.3 shows us that. Listen to what it says. For by the grace given to me, I say to you, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly more highly than he ought to think. That's a superiority complex. Now, where do we get this superiority complex from? Well, Philippians chapter 2 shows us, tells us where we get a superiority complex from, why we would struggle with a superiority complex or pride or conceit. Listen to what he says, Philippians 2, 1, and 3. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection or sympathy, and he's actually saying, since you have these things, as believers in Christ, you have each one of these. You have encouragement in Christ, comfort from his love, participation in the Spirit, any affection or sympathy, you have these things in Christ. Therefore, there should be a fullness in you. And then he goes on in verse 2 and he says, then have unity and harmony among you. And then he kind of defines what that what it doesn't look like, what it does look like. And he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Now, that's where a superiority complex comes from. Selfish ambition is promoting yourself. Why would you promote yourself? Because you have conceit or pride. We'll define that word in a minute. But then he makes a contrast between selfish ambition and, or conceit. And he says, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. So what is conceit? You guys probably should know this by now. I've, I've taught it at least twice in the last year. Maybe, maybe that wasn't enough, okay? So that's why we repeat ourselves. <laughs> it's not because I'm out of material. It's because we need to keep hearing the same things over and over again because we tend to forget these things. And so what is, what is conceit? It is vain Glory is the kind of the new, or the King James Version uses that term. And so you're, the word vain means empty. So you are empty of glory or you are glory hungry. It's a glory hunger. Or you are glory empty. So a, a, a being glory empty means to be starved for respect, honor, validation, approval, and significance. Now think about this. We were made to stand in the presence of God. Go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. We were made to walk in the garden in the cool of the day and to look into the face of our maker and to receive his favor, to fill us up with his glory. But Genesis 3, what did we do? We thought we were smarter than God. We thought that he was holding out on us. We didn't need him. We rebelled against him. We rejected him. We turned away from him. And what happened? Well, immediately there's that spiritual alienation that leads to a psychological alienation. We became glory hungry, empty of glory, 
desperate need to fill up the emptiness inside of us. And so the spiritual alienation led to a psychological alienation which leads to social alienation. All of our problems relationally are rooted in our glory hunger that comes from our alienation from God, our rebellion against a holy, loving God. And that's where, that's where conceit is, conceit, empty of, of glory. And so we promote ourselves. And, and what we're talking about here, this is a cosmic insecurity of thinking and feeling that I don't matter or count. And so therefore, everything, every relationship becomes, becomes a means to that end, to fill us with that, with that glory that we desperately need because we've turned away from God. And so if, if conceit is an inner emptiness, then humility must mean inner fullness. That's why he started Philippians off by saying, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection or sympathy, he's literally saying, since we have these things, you have an inner fullness. Therefore, it should humble you. And so if conceit is an inner emptiness, then humility must mean an inner fullness. That's your next fill in the blank on your notes. Humility. We've got to define humility. So what is humility? It's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. C.S. Lewis called it a blessed self-forgetfulness. He, he's just saying, this is the sweet place to live in life, a blessed self-forgetfulness. It's just a great place to live. Now, Humility is not found by direct pursuit. There are no college courses on humility. Hey, everybody, I'm getting straight A's in my humility class. No, you just got an F, okay? You just failed the class. See, humility is a byproduct of being satisfied in Christ. Humility is a byproduct of being captivated and enthralled by the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. It's really the fear of the Lord that does that. The fear of the Lord uh, is, a, is, a, is a joyful awe and wonder of the beauty and the glory of who Christ is and what he's done for you that it ruins you for anything else. That's, that's the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 9.10. So it's really, we're talking about really the fear of the Lord. If you have a fear of the Lord, oh my goodness, you're going to be humbled. I can always tell when someone's really walking in this relationship with Christ and really has had an encounter with Christ, there's a humility about them. They're not, they're not self-absorbed and self-centered. They're really focused on Christ, finding deep satisfaction in Him. You see, a humble person has has nothing to prove and nothing to lose because of their contentment and completeness in Christ. And that's why when you meet a humble person, you will notice really four things. This isn't on your notes, but let me kind of walk through these things. This is what you will notice is that they are totally dependent upon God, that they, they just trust God. They just love God. They're walking with God. They know God. 
They're totally dependent upon him for everything. And then they're exceptionally content. I mean, if you're trusting God, you're going to be exceptionally content. That's the second thing. The third thing is you're going to be filled with gratitude no matter what's going down in your life. You just, you just have a lot of gratitude because you know you have his presence no matter what. And then the fourth thing is that you will be incredibly or they will be incredibly interested in the needs of others. They're others directed. Why would they, why would they have all four of those? Because, because they are fully satisfied in Christ. They're not, they're not desperate to fill up the neediness inside of them. They're operating not out of a deficit, but out of an abundance of what they have in him, in Christ Jesus. So if you want to live a great life, know who you aren't. That will humble you. And then know who you are. That's the next one. Listen to what uh, John the Baptist says, uh, how, they, how he responds. So they, so they said to him, well, then who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I'm a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. You hear what he's saying? He he knows who he is. I'm a voice. I'm not the message. I'm the messenger. I'm not the object of worship, but a witness of the one who is. I'm not the destination, but the signpost pointing to the destination. Did you know that as leaders here at Desert Breeze and as followers of Christ, our job description is that we are a signpost pointing to Jesus. And uh, if you're heading to Flagstaff because you're tired of the triple digits in October and you're wanting to go up there to cool down, and as you're heading into Flag and there's there's a signpost that says 50 miles to Flag, you don't stop at the signpost and celebrate as if you have arrived and make much of that signpost, do you? That would be weird. No, you go, okay, we got 50 miles. We'll be there soon. You just keep heading down the road. That's our job. Don't stop here. Don't worship me. It's not about me. It's about him. It's about you knowing him, helping people to see him more clearly. That's what John the Baptist is doing. Now, John certainly didn't have an inferiority complex. That's the next point on your notes. Let's define that, inferiority complex. Is thinking too lowly of yourself, really based on self-pity. Now, now think about this just for a minute. When you think of pride or conceit, pride or conceit, the coin of pride and conceit is, has two sides to that coin. The one side is uh, the side of superiority, boasting. I deserve admiration because of how much I've accomplished. Hey, could you guys brag a little bit more about me? I'm, I'm not saying that about me. I'm just making that a, as an example. But, but that's, what that, that's one side. But the other side is inferiority complex, and it's really more based on self-pity. I deserve admiration because of how much I'm suffering. Do you have any idea what I've gone through? 
Both of those are pride and conceit. It's a desperate need to fill up the emptiness inside. And um, listen to what uh, Paul says in Galatians 5.26, because he kind of defines both the superiority complex and inferiority complex. He shows us what this looks like in our life. He says, let us not become conceited. There's the word conceit or pride, empty of glory, glory hunger, And then he talks about, because in doing that, if we're conceited, we will be provoking one another. That's a superiority complex. That's what the Pharisees, they had a superiority complex. Always right, self-appointed critics and judges of everyone. And so provoking one another. And then he goes, or envying one another. That's an inferiority complex. That's like, wow, why, why do they always get all the breaks? I'm getting the living daylights beat out of me. Why do these people, I'm, I know I'm better than them. And they seem to be succeeding. They seem to be doing well. They seem to not be suffering like me. That's what envying is. That's an inferiority complex. So superiority complex is, is more of a towering over people, looking down at people. And an inferiority complex is looking up at people. Cowering. And both of these are, are a sign of, of self-absorption or self-centeredness, a preoccupation with self. It's interesting, as we continue to read, you'll see in a little bit that uh, in verse 27, John the Baptist says, I'm unworthy to untie his sandals. Now, if John the Baptist were to go to a secular humanist counselor, they might say to him, wait a minute, buddy. Isn't that our main problem, a, self, a, a low self-esteem? You, you shouldn't despise yourself like that. Don't you see the greatness in you? John is not saying I despise and dislike myself when he uses that term, I am unworthy to untie his sandals. He's saying this, I realize how little I deserve <laughs> and how much I've received. I can't believe what I have in him. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. I'm freed from having to be preoccupied with myself. I've never been more satisfied. I'm not self-absorbed or self-centered. It's not about me. All of life does not revolve around me. It revolves around him. And oh my goodness, I'm overwhelmed. I'm not even worthy to untie his Sandals. When you're helping a person, a friend, this is what you need to always keep in mind. Helping a wounded person out of an inferiority complex into a superiority complex by telling them to look out for number one keeps them stuck in their self-absorption. So oftentimes we're around friends that have a lot of self-pity and say, no, you're a good person and you can do this. And you're just keeping them focused on themselves. It's help them to focus on Christ. He's the answer to our problems. Nothing rids you of self-centeredness like satisfaction in Christ, like being absorbed 
and satisfied and enthralled by the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing better than that, causing you to take your mind off of yourself and onto Christ and others. There's that blessed self-forgetfulness. That's the sweet, the sweet part of life. That's the sweet place in life, to live for his glory, not for yours, because you're filled up with his glory. And so if the opposite of a superiority complex is humility, then the opposite of an inferiority complex is confidence. It's confidence. Next fill in the blank on your notes. Let's define that. It comes from an identity that is not achieved but received. Romans 12.3b, the rest of Romans 12.3. Remember what he said? Don't think too highly of yourself. But then he goes on, he says, but think of yourself with sober judgment. He's saying with accurate judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned to you or given to you. Don't you realize what God has given to you? Now, 1 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4, Paul says some pretty phenomenal stuff that I've found really quite helpful in my life in, in finding that confidence that I need. And uh, listen to what he says. He says, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. Yeah, you talk nasty about me, but it's water on a duck's back. You say mean things about me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. Do you hear what he's saying? Or by any human court. Gather up all your friends. Come after me. It doesn't matter. He goes on. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Now, now let's just stop there for a minute because our, our culture would say, don't worry about what people say about you. It's what you say about you. That's what matters. <laughs> that doesn't work either, really. So, so, you're gonna, so you're the one that sets the standards for you? Well, that's what Hitler did. That's what serial killers do. He's saying, I, 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 don't even, I do not even judge myself. Now listen to what he says. For I am not aware of anything against myself. I got a clear conscience. But that doesn't mean anything. But I am not thereby acquitted. You can have a clear conscience and say, hey, you know, I don't feel bad about hurting that person or doing those mean, nasty things. But I'm not thereby acquitted. Now, and this is where he ends. He says, it is the Lord who judges me. My standard is God. It's what he says about me. That carries all the weight. Paul is saying, I don't get my confidence or my identity from my performance and human approval or even my, my approval, my own approval, but I get it as a gift from God. It's what he says about me. He's the judge. I live before God. I will stand before God. It's what he says about me. It's about what his word says. My wife and I, uh, this last, this summer, it's a couple, I think it's been about a month or two months ago in the summertime, we, we did take a, a trip up to, up to Flag and hung out with some family and friends. And, and there in that group was an 87-year-old counselor friend of ours 
uh, who uh, her and her husband attend Desert Breeze. We've known I've I've known her or them my whole life, and um, and she taught us my wife and I how to laugh. Sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? But with all this COVID and this pandemic and all the craziness and the summer months and all of that, she just said, hey, I want to remind you something of your identity. And so she taught us how to laugh. And she used the word laugh as an acronym, L-A-F-F. I don't, I'm not sure that's, that's not how you spell laugh, though, is it? But that's, that's how she spelt it. She goes, I'm going to teach you how to laugh, L-A-F-F. And she says, this is what you need to always keep in mind. And you need to say this to yourself regularly. I am loved, accepted, forgiven, and free so that I can love, accept, forgive, and free. Isn't that a good word? That's good stuff. I mean, that's, that's the kind of stuff we need to be reminded of daily. I am, I am loved I am accepted, I am forgiven and free so that, so that I, can, I can love, accept, forgive, and free others. I can bring the gospel message to them. And, and so there is a difference between working for your identity, your confidence, and working from your identity or your confidence. Does, does that make sense? So every day, you're either working for your identity or from your identity. In the movie Rocky, this is an old classic illustration here at Desert Breeze. In the movie Rocky, Rocky won, first Rocky. Uh, how many have ever, how many have seen the movie? Okay, know what I'm talking about? How many don't know what I'm talking about when I say Rocky, first Rocky? Okay, there's a couple hands here. Because actually, Rocky came out in, in the first Rocky came out in the 70s. How many remember that? Show of hands. You guys are really old. And uh, how many have never seen Rocky before? Just curious. Okay. I want you to come up at the end of the service and I'll pray for you. I'm not sure it's worth even watching, but, uh, but there's an interesting scene in the movie. Uh, Rocky's girlfriend asked him why it is so important for him to go the distance. Because that's what he said, I just want to go the distance. I want to go the distance in the match. He's a boxer, okay. And he replies, then I'll know I'm not a bum. Now, let me ask you this. Is Rocky working from his identity or for his identity? Yell it out to me. For his identity. And he went the distance it wasn't enough, so they made 10 more movies after that. Okay. They didn't make 10. They actually made four more, so they made five. And then after that, then they did a Rocky Balboa movie. And then I guess within the last few years, they made another movie. Okay. Here, here's, here's the point. If you're always working for your identity, it will never be enough. I said this the last two weeks, that there is a life, there's an identity in Christ that all the success in this world can't give you, and all the suffering in this world can't take from you. You are loved, you are accepted, you are forgiven, and you are free. By the way, we, we went through a whole identity series uh, starting Easter. You can go online and, and go back through that series. 
I mean, we have more than just four items on that identity series. There's a lot to our identity in Christ. And it's, it's transforming. And you are to work from that identity, not for it. You've got it. We have an identity that is not achieved but received. Every other belief system, every other cult and religion in our world today, they have an identity system that is achieved. We have an identity system that is received by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so if you are working for your identity, success will go to your head. It will inflate you. And failure will go to your heart. It will deflate you. So let me ask you this question. Every day, every day when you get out of bed in the morning and whatever you do throughout the day, you are either working for your identity or from your identity. And how would I know? Are you living for your glory or are you living for his glory? Every decision you make, every demand of life, every difficulty of life, the question is, are you living for your glory or are you living for his glory? And let me tell you, living for his glory, there is nothing more satisfying. That's what you were created for, is to live for his glory. And nothing will satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. And nothing will fill you up more than to live for his glory, making much of him. Now, you don't have to do great things. Oftentimes I hear people say, I just, if I could just do really great things. You don't have to do great things. Anything you do for Jesus is great because Jesus is great. Even if you give a cup of cold water, as Jesus said, to the least of these, you do this as unto me. That's what he said. That's a great thing because we're doing it for Christ who is great. The greatness isn't in what we do, but in who we do it for. So if you clean your house or go to work or raise your kids or pay your bills or forgive your enemies to the glory of God, that is greatness. Anytime you are living for God's glory, you are living a great life. Now, greatness is knowing who you aren't, that humbles you, knowing who you are, that gives you confidence, and knowing who Jesus is. And in fact, humble confidence is a byproduct of knowing who Jesus is. And let's, let's talk about that. This is where we'll finish up the teaching. We'll focus on Christ now. Know who Jesus is. That's your next fill in the blank. I want you to, uh, as we walk through this, first of all, I want you to notice in this text that when they ask John the Baptist, who are you? I think he kind of whispers that. I don't think it's really loud, but when, they, when he begins to talk about Christ, he begins to shout. And, and see if John the Baptist isn't acting like a, like a madman here driven out of his mind for the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ, fueled by a passion for God and a compassion for people, reminding us that you cannot meet the creator of the universe and remain the same. And so know who Jesus is, his presence. That's your next one. Look at verses 24 through 26. 
Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. Remember, we talked about the Pharisees. So this is a little committee that had been sent by the Pharisees. And they asked him, then, then why are you baptizing? You hear the interrogation of these, of these people? If you are neither Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. And John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you, among you stands one you do not know. Among you, he's here. Tells us in John 1, 14, we studied this this last week, the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. So Jesus came among us so that we could have the presence of God forever with us. That's what we have in Christ Jesus. And then his greatness. Even he who comes after me This is verse 27. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now here's what's interesting. Every service a slave performed for his master, a disciple would do for his teacher except untie their sandals. Disciples were not required to go that low. Only slaves were required to untie the sandals or wash Someone's dirty, sweaty, smelly feet. So what is John the Baptist saying? He's saying, I don't even aspire to go that high. Do you have that high of a view of Christ? You can always tell when someone has pride because they have an attitude of entitlement. It's like, I deserve this, and God should be doing that, and and I deserve this from you, and... That's an attitude of entitlement, comes from pride. But you can tell when someone's really humble, they have an attitude of indebtedness, realizing how little they deserve and how much they have received. That's what he's saying. I am not even worthy to untie his sandals. Do you have any idea who this is? Well, we should be talking like that regularly if we've really had an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ and living in the reality of what we have in him. And then his purpose, verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, immediately most of the Jews would understand what he's talking about here because the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament sacrificial system pointed ahead to Jesus as the once and for all ultimate sacrifice for our sins. That's what John the Baptist is saying, he's come to die for our sins, to take the sin away from the world. Now, this is what you need to be reminded of, is that your greatest problem is sin. Your greatest problem is separation from God. And I know that many of you come in here with a lot of different problems, but all other problems pale in comparison to your greatest problem. Your greatest problem is sin, and that separates you from God. And Jesus comes to take away the sin of the world. That alone, that truth alone should create in you an indescribable, indestructible joy that should last you the rest of your life and take you all the way into heaven no matter what happens in your life. He's taken away our sins. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. 
Romans 8.1. No more guilt. No more shame. Past, present, and future. That's why John the Baptist was so excited. Jesus comes to take away the sin of the world. And I'm not minimizing the problems you're facing, but if he took care of your worst problem, he's got your other problems covered. He'll take care of you. And so the gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son to die in our place for our sins and all who repent and believe in him have everlasting life. That's his purpose. Here's his nature, verses 30 and 31. This is he who I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Now in the gospel according to Luke, We see that John the Baptist was born six months before Jesus. So he was six months older than Jesus, but he looked at Jesus and said, he ranks before me because he was before me. (laughs) The, The language that he's using here, he says, there is something eternal about Jesus Christ. Of course, we know from studying Scripture that, yeah, Jesus Christ is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the triune God. And then his ministry, that's your next fill in the blank there, verses 32 to 33, and John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I want you to take note of that, remained on him. And I myself did not know him, but he he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain... This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So what is this saying? It's saying that Jesus lived by the power of the Holy Spirit and he came to baptize us in the Holy Spirit. The word baptism means immerse. And so he's saying he will immerse you in the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8, remember before Jesus ascended into, into heaven, he told his disciples, He said, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You know what the word witness is in the Greek? Martyr, martyr. You're going to be willing to die for me. You're going to be so filled up with my Holy Spirit that you'll be willing to lay your life down for me. The Holy Spirit doesn't make you weird. The Holy Spirit makes you more like Christ. The Holy Spirit empowers you to be what he wants you to be, to do what he wants you to do, all for God's glory. And then we have the last one here, his character. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The word Son of God or the phrase Son of God means here's someone who has the same characteristics of God. That is used in the New Testament 124 times. Jesus calls God his Father 165 times in the New Testament. So like Father, like Son, Jesus shares all the divine attributes and divine authority of God. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, John 14, 7. So John the Baptist was beheaded as a martyr in Jesus' uh, 
early in Jesus' ministry before he had a chance to see all that Jesus is and came to do through his death and resurrection. Let me ask you this question, see if you can answer this. What was the motto or the mission statement of John the Baptist's life? What was the motto or mission statement or purpose statement of John the Baptist's life? Anybody want to guess? You got it. I must decrease, he must increase. You want to live a great life? That's a great purpose statement. I pray that every time I get up here. God, please, may I decrease. May you increase in my life. Please, Lord. That's a great way to live your life. So if this is what the person looked like who prepared the way for Jesus, then what should a disciple of Jesus Christ look like who comes after Jesus? We should be even more filled with humble confidence, driven out of our minds for Christ Jesus and fueled by a passion for him and a compassion for people. We're gonna talk more about that next week on how to, what it means to follow Jesus. My wife and I will be up front at the end of the service. If you are new, we would love to meet you. If you need prayer, we would love to pray with you. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? So Father God, we pray that knowing who we aren't would humble us, eliminating any attitude of superiority and knowing who we are would fill us with confidence and boldness, eliminating any attitude of inferiority as we are more and more captivated by the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Help us to see more than ever that greatness is not doing great things as much as it is being what you have called us to be and doing what you have called us to do, empowered by your Holy Spirit all for your glory because you are great, God. May we decrease and you increase in our lives, we pray in Jesus' glorious and beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Love you guys. God bless you.